0: evening. We're very fortunate to have with us Tim Dalgleish. Tim um, is a clinical psychologist and a researcher. He works at the uh, Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at Cambridge University, not that far from Oxford here. Tim was one of the principal investigators on the Myriad Project, which many of you probably know is the very large-scale research project that has been going on here in Oxford for several years now. has a lot of results um there's a lot to know about what that project has been telling us and Tim is going to provide us with um, a summary of what we've learned from this research project so Tim I'll hand it over to you now and if you'd like to share your screen I know you've got some slides now would be the time to do that
1: thank you I'll just do that now then
0: okay Um. Can you see that all right? Yep I can see it perfectly well. Great. So
1: thank you very much for inviting me um, to such an interesting group. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here to talk about the project that has um, I guess been quite a major part of the last eight or actually probably 10 years of my life if you think about the planning stage as well. So this was a really large research programme which explored
0: whether schools-based mindfulness training could improve the mental health of young people in early adolescence. And it was a massive um, effort
1: on behalf of many, many people across the world. So the principal investigators, myself, Mark Williams and Willem Kaiken, who you know in Oxford very well, and Sarah-Jane Blakemore in Cambridge, a group of co-investigators and then large teams of researchers um, in Cambridge, Oxford, Exeter, UCL, King's, and a whole group of collaborators, a fantastic scientific
0: advisory board, trial steering committee, and so forth. Um, so all in all, we uh,
1: we worked with and involved 28,000 28, children and young people in the project, more than 100 schools, 650 teachers, 100 researchers, and we collected 20 million data points. And I think there's now 25 published papers and counting, so it's been a huge undertaking. So what problem were we trying to solve? Um, So the major challenge um, which we started with was the huge prevalence of common mental health problems. So this is just an example um, in terms of major depression, but one in 10 people globally will suffer from a a major depressive problem at least once in their lifetime. And this is actually more than 4% of the global population. And really our treatments for depression, although they're good, they leave lots of people with residual problems and nearly always lead to recurrence. So it's a massive challenge to think, how might we do something to reduce this huge burden of depression? And in particular, um, depression is on the increase in young people, along with other common mental health problems, stress-related disorders, anxiety, behavioral problems. So not only do we need to think about the burden of depression in adults and older age, but also increasingly in young people. And so what we wanted to do was see if there's anything we could do to shift the burden of depression um, across the lifespan. So when we were sitting down thinking about where to start, there are a number of things which we felt pretty confident of. Um, and which should inform the decisions we made about what we'd want to do with this research project. So the first is that we know a lot of these problems have their first or m- modal or most frequent onset when people are quite young, um, often in their teenage years or sometimes even earlier. So on this graph you see um, the, the peak the peak in terms of age years of when different problems have their most common onset and you can see in depression it's late teens anxiety I don't know if you can see my mouse but anxiety on the left it's sort of mid-teens stress related disorders it's mid-teens so uh, mo- most of these common mental health problems have their um, most common onset um, in the teenage years and in fact um, by the age of 18 75 uh, percent of most of these common mental health problems will already have started. Um, for the people who will then go on to experience them across their lives. So we know that adolescence is a key window that we need to bear in mind if we're going to think about what we might do to change this picture. The second is this, um, don't worry too much about the graph, this insight from Geoffrey Rose in this famous paper, Sick Individuals and Sick Populations in the Mid-1980s. And what, what Jeffrey Rose noticed was that um, if you just target people who you think are at high risk of problems and you try and do something with those high risk individuals to prevent them, those problems, you know, developing at all or getting worse, um, you're actually going to benefit far fewer people than if you do an intervention which benefits everybody. Because although those people are at higher risk, it's still true that the majority of problems um, for a highly prevalent difficulty like depression are going to occur in the people at lower risk just because it's such a common problem. So by focusing on the high risk people you actually miss uh, the opportunity to do more good. So what you really want to do is take a population approach and what's called a universal approach. So come up with an intervention that is actually made available to everybody because that's your best chance of reducing the burden of the difficulty um, down the line. So what we were looking for then was a universal intervention, a universal prevention, in fact, which we could deliver before all these problems really began in early adolescence. We thought that was the that was the most useful thing we could try to come up with, a preventative intervention delivered in early adolescence before most problems arise, um, but which we could actually give to everybody. So it couldn't just be a kind of mental health treatment like cognitive behavior therapy which actually really requires people to have quite a lot of symptoms in order for them to be able to engage with it. It had to be something that would benefit everybody across that broad spread of people, because we know that it's better to provide something to everybody to to cause the greatest preventative effect uh, downstream. And so there weren't really so many options once we would narrowed it down to... um, this um, and by far the leading option was some form of mindfulness training. So we know that mindfulness training, uh, as it's been used clinically, certainly in terms of depression, is designed for prevention. so that's that's really good. We also know it enhances core mechanisms such as self-regulation. Um, obviously there's other ways to think about those mechanisms. But essentially they're mechanisms that everybody can benefit from. You don't need to be currently struggling with uh, high levels of symptoms that make you at risk of depression. Self-regulation is a generic skill, which is just as important to flourishing as it is to preventing mental ill health. So no active symptoms are required. So we, we, we'd we already then made a few of our key decisions. We wanted to do something that targeted early adolescence. We wanted to, um, uh, do something that was universal, and we wanted to use mindfulness training. And why Why? Why do you think mindfulness would be useful? Well, we'd already, um, our background, um, uh, th- three of the four of us who are principal investigators on this big project, um, come from working on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy in adults, and we know that that's an effective intervention. So this Um, This paper from 2016 is what's called an individual patient data meta-analysis, which is just a fancy term for taking all the clinical trials and pooling all of the data together, um, all the individual participants all in one big long list and analysing all the data as if it's one big trial. And this showed unequivocally that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was an effective way of preventing depressive relapse in people who'd had several episodes of depression in the past. So we know that mindfulness is a really good prevention of future depression. And this has led to it being, this intervention being included in the NICE guidelines for um, depression. We'd also uh, completed what's called feasibility work or pilot work in the young people, the very population that we now wanted to target. So we've done a number of uh, clinical trials um, and these were very promising, although they, they, they were small in number, they, um, they, show, they, they had a signal that there was something really useful about mindfulness delivered to younger adolescents, delivered in, in a school context that's likely to be helpful in, in um, preventing uh, the worsening of these mental health problems. And we also, again, combined all these trials together in a a meta-analysis, so don't worry too much about the numbers. And this showed that there were good effects of prevention of schools-based mindfulness programmes on key things we thought were important, so developing mindfulness skills, behavioural problems, depression, anxiety, and also, and we'll come back to this, what we thought was this key mechanism, which I called self-regulation, but it's also called things like executive function. So it improves this key mechanism of improving your mental regulation. So lots of promise in the work with adolescents on the back of really strong evidence in adults that mindfulness is a good prevention for mental ill health. So this led us to the question then, has mindfulness training in adolescents the potential to shift the population, so not just people at risk, everybody, slightly sideways into a better space, away from psychological problems and towards improved mental health. By addressing these key processes of mental regulation or executive control that operate across the spectrum of risk and resilience, and by virtue of doing those things, improving um, mental health symptoms. So that was the question we set out to ask. So what did we do? We did lots and lots of things, and I'm gonna pick out a few uh, this evening, in particular, the large uh, clinical trial um, that we did. It's called a clinical trial just because that's the methodology. I'm not implying that young people in schools are, are patients. They're just called clinical trials. So what did we do? So the main, the main thing we did was this big, what's called a randomized controlled trial. And what you do there is you recruit a large number, in this case, a large number of young adolescents um, and you randomly assign half of them to receive mindfulness prevention programme in their school. And the other half just get the teaching they would have got anyway. And what you can then do is compare how well those two groups do after you finish the, the mindfulness training. So it's called a randomised controlled trial because it's ra- you randomly um, putting people into groups, and of course that's important because if you just say, well, "Would you rather do the mindfulness or would you rather do the uh, teaching as usual?", then you're just going to find out um, that things work for people who were really, really engaged and really like them in the first place. So you randomly select people to the groups, and then you you follow them up and see uh, how they do. And we wanted to test three things. So when you do these trials, you have to choose what to call your outcomes. So what are the things you're going to measure to test your question about whether mental health is improved? We had three of these outcomes and they're called our primary outcomes. And I'll come back to that. And also we have to choose our population. So we decided to choose secondary school children aged 11 to 14. So in this window, before the onset of most Um, mental health problems. So we wanted to get in there as a prevention before things started to get um, worse. So our three outcomes were risk for depression. So um, can we reduce the risk of depression in this uh, group of young people by giving mindfulness training? Um, Current levels of social and emotional functioning and behavioral functioning. And these are more things like conduct problems, Impulsivity, restlessness, um, social awkwardness, and so on. Can we improve these things through mindfulness training? And finally, well-being. Can we make uh, people uh, feel better about themselves, have improved have improved well-being as a function of the mindfulness training? So we had these three key outcomes, um, which were our way of answering that question about whether we can shift the population towards better mental health. So this is, this is a little bit of the technical stuff. So, um, so we're talking about shifting a population and these curves are really the distribution of mental health in the population. And you can see at the top that all we're trying to do is shift it down, shift the curve to the left a really, really small amount. And this is called the effect size. Um, and we'll come back to this because the effect size is going to be critical. So the effect size we were looking for is an effect size of 0.2. And just to give you an idea of what that would be in the real world, it would be, if you think about height, it's the difference in height between your average teenage female at 16 and your average teenage female at 17. So it's not supposed to be even a difference that's really observable in terms of height to the naked eye. So it's a really, really small effect. So we were, so the rationale here was you don't need to have a big sledgehammer effect because if you can have a small effect that just accrues over many months or years, that's gonna have a really profound effect over time in changing the trajectory of young people who are destined to have mental health difficulties. So we're deliberately looking for these very small effects of of 0.2 and it's important to remember that number. And it could be 0.2 on any of these three variables I mentioned, so the social one, the depression one or the well-being one. It doesn't have to be on all of them. So we gave ourselves three bites, if you like, of the research cherry. A small effect on any of these variables for us that would be a sign that this is well really worthwhile doing, because um, we think those small effects would accumulate over time. So what did we do? We used this this great intervention that was developed by the Mindfulness in School project called DOT-B. So it's a universal intervention critically developed by school teachers in collaboration with school students. So the the very population who we would be wanting to deliver the intervention in our trial and the population whom it's aimed to benefit. And it's a 10 session intervention. So 10 weekly sessions of around 50 minutes to an hour with some booster sessions further down the line. And it has a bundle of psychoeducational elements, but also critically mindfulness practices in the lessons, which the students are then encouraged to do in between lessons as home-based practice. And then ideally carry on with after the training is finished um, um, and and take that mindfulness practice forward. And the intervention includes a really excellent package of teacher training um, um, and ongoing support for teachers as they learn and develop um, their ability to deliver the intervention um, more effectively so this is the intervention we wanted to uh, work with and we had this whole theoretical model of how we needed to think about um, mindfulness training which involved all of these components. There's the individual level, what's going on in the students' heads if you teach them mindfulness. And we had this idea that there should be this improvement in these mindfulness skills, which really boiled down to developing skills of mental regulations. That was our kind of theory of what's going on in the students' heads. But we also thought the mindfulness training would benefit the school climate and the school atmosphere. If a whole school is training lots of its kids to do mindfulness, there should be these systemic changes. And of course, we realised that there's a wider context around that. Some of the schools we work with would be in more deprived areas and some would be in wealthier areas and so on. So there's these multiple layers of complexity, all of which feed into what what drives um, the ability for an intervention like mindfulness to have its effect on the things we want it to be having the effect on. So we put together this, this kind of conceptual model. And we have these very careful statistical analysis plans for just these three variables to say we think one or two or three of these variables will show this small effect of point 0.2 when kids have mindfulness training compared to when they have usual teaching. So the difference between those two interventions will be this small improvement on one or more of these variables, depression, social behavioural well-being. That'll be the difference between usual teaching and the new training that we're introducing. But we also had a whole other set of questions that we put into our statistical analysis plan. And these were what what you might call exploratory questions. So the only ones you can ever really take to the bank are the ones that you've properly set the study up to do, which are, does mindfulness training on these three variables um, have this effect of 0.2 or greater when we compare it to Uh, usual teaching but we wanted to look at a whole load of other things as well effects on teachers effects on other things in the pupil pupils um, behavior or in their mental health so we had a whole list of what we call secondary variables um, which we also looked at and we had a whole set of other exploratory questions we might want to ask like well maybe it will work better for the older uh, young adolescents than the younger ones maybe it works better for young people who are a bit more depressed and anxious when they start the training. Maybe it works better for people from a deprived area than a wealthy area. And they're all explorations, but the trial was not set up to answer those in a definitive way where we could say that is a guaranteed finding which we can be comfortable with. But we thought we could get hints about some of those things to drive our future studies. So we included all those questions in the trial as well. So what did we find? So this is just what's called a consort diagram. It shows the flow through the trial. So you can see right at the top, we we approached more than 5,500 schools. We ended up with 85 schools who agreed to take part. And this is a big undertaking for the schools, more than two years working with us on this project. And half of those schools were allocated to uh, the mindfulness intervention and half to the control intervention, which essentially was their usual pshe teaching and for the schools allocated to the mindfulness intervention we committed to training the teachers to be competent at delivering the dot B mindfulness in schools program and um, really importantly, these were teachers trained from a standing start. So the mindfulness in schools program um, has lots of extremely experienced teachers who've been through the program and are part of a, an excellent network of mindfulness teachers, but our view was if this is ever going to be something we roll out on a national basis to the whole of the country or even wider we need to really think what would be a plausible way of doing that and the most plausible way of doing that would be to see can we take teachers and train them from a standing start to be competent at delivering the intervention and then can we see that that intervention uh works so this is um this is what we did and the key thing is this thing at the bottom. Our pr- our key outcome was one year after the intervention finished. So it's very easy, often with mental health interventions, to get effects immediately afterwards. Um, uh, anyone who's studied anything, you're you're much more likely to uh, benefit from it if you're asked immediately after you've done it. Well, what 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 was going on there? But the key thing, of course, for prevention is these effects have to last over time. So our key outcome was looking a year down the line after the interventions finished can we see downstream benefits of people having done the mindfulness plus some booster sessions over the year but having essentially done the main course of 10 weeks a year before so this gra- this numbers in here but it's really just to show that when we compare the SBNT schools based mindfulness training arm of the trial so these the young people the schools who've been randomized to this to get the mindfulness compared to the teaching as usual arm that the schools are more or less the same on all the characteristics you'd like them to be the same on where they are in the country the type of school they are the deprivation index and so forth and that's what you get with randomization um it's nearly always the case that if you randomly allocate schools to two different uh, uh, conditions in a trial they'll be more or less matched on all these things because it's just random So, But it's good to show there's no systematic biases in there that we need to correct for with our statistics. And the same is true with the young people. So um, around 4,200 in each of the conditions, 4,200 young people received mindfulness, 4,200 roughly received teaching as usual. And again, they were pretty matched on all of these demographic and symptom based and clinical measures at the start. So you can see at the bottom, these are three, our three key outcomes: depression, social functioning, and well-being. The scores on these measures, you don't need to worry too much about they are are pretty much the same across the two, uh, the two arms of the trial. So this is really good. This is what we want to see at the beginning: that there's no there's no kind of bias creeping in. We did really well at, at following up our pupils. So you can imagine um, those of you who work in schools, lots of kids leave schools <laughs> but we managed to get about 86 87 percent of our young people um, still taking part in the study our one year follow-up down downstream so we recruited them they did the intervention and a year later we got nearly all of them um, back again to 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 complete our measures of these three key things social functioning depression and well-being so, what are our findings? So, in order to um, when you when you do one of these randomised controlled studies, you have to take what's called your your baseline measure. So, where are the ch- where are the young people starting at in terms of their um, say depression um, well being? What's their starting score, which you, you use obviously to measure to see whether they've changed from the beginning before they've had the mindfulness training to the end. You have to take that starting score before you randomly allocate the schools to be a mindfulness school or a usual teaching school. But of course, then it takes a year or a year and a half, um, year and three quarters to actually train the teachers in this mindfulness schools to to actually learn to deliver the mindfulness intervention. So we had no idea which young people would end up in in the trial a year and a half later. But we still, had to, we still had to measure, do the measure um, before we decided which schools had mindfulness, which didn't. So we ended up measuring tw- 28,000 um, young people, just so, just so we could guarantee that we'd measured every child in the school who might be eligible. So that a year and a half down the line, the 4,000 who ended up doing mindfulness, we, we knew that we would definitely have got their measures uh, earlier on. So the first part of our study was really just looking at these 28,000. Gave us a real ability to see what's the snapshot of mental health um, problems in a really big representative sample within the UK schools population. And what we found was, was kind of in line with what we'd expected from some of the big epidemiological surveys. So this is our first of our three key outcomes. And we found that at, at the beginning of the trial, about a third of young people had had quite a bit of depression and actually 11% probably would have met criteria for a diagnosis of depression and about two thirds weren't depressed. So this is our universal schools population. And the same with the social and emotional problems around um, again, 29, 30% um, have borderline to very high difficulties And um, the the rest are are functioning pretty well. And the same with well-being. They they use this term in the well-being literature of languishing. So 17% have really low well-being and 12%, it wasn't very low, but they certainly didn't have good well-being at all. And then the small number at the other end of this distribution who would be described as flourishing, just doing really well on all measures that we gave them. So this was the distribution of young people we had at the beginning of our, our trial, and this is all, this is the 28,000, but the 8,000 we extracted from this to run the trial looked exactly the same. So what did we find? So <clears throat> let's just go back and remind ourselves, our prediction was, can we find this small effect, this magic number of 0.2 of an effect um, on any of our three key outcomes depression well-being or social functioning one year after the end of mindfulness intervention relative to the teaching as usual so we want this small difference between the two groups will there be a a 0.2 effect uh, reduction in depression a 0.2 effect reduction in social functioning or a 0.2 increase in well-being or and any of those would be fine well, unfortunately, what we found was that there was no evidence that the schools-based mindfulness training helped the early teenagers' mental health or well-being overall. So um, I've got these red marks on my screen. I don't know if you know on yours, but I don't know where they've come from. But the key thing is here is to the right um, where we've got these uh, uh, what are called probability values. And they're basically saying, well, these effects are are not significant and not not having any benefit on depression, social functioning, or well-being. And in fact, the effect sizes, which so we're looking for the magic of 0.2, were around 10 times to 20 times smaller than that. So it's not like we've we've missed it by a small amount. we showed um, <clears throat> that the effects we got were actually orders of magnitude smaller than even the very small effects that we had developed the study to find. So we had found absolutely no signal whatsoever of a benefit for any of our variables of receiving the mindfulness strain. And this was true of our whole long list. Uh, if you remember, those are the three variables we could, had we found what we wanted to find, we could take to the bank. We had a whole long list of other variables which we wanted to look at to see if there's something else going on that maybe we could use to drive future research. And on none of those other variables did we find any evidence whatsoever that um, the mindfulness training would would have a benefit.
0: Um,
1: We had a whole cost-effectiveness analysis, a health economics analysis built in as well, Um, but that's kind of moot um, when the intervention isn't really working. But uh, just for interest, it was costing about £70 per student to deliver the mindfulness intervention. So this includes all of the training of the teachers and so on. So that it had it worked, it would have been an incredibly cost effective intervention. £70 um, per recipient for a psychological intervention is re- incredibly cheap. Um, so it, 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 in terms of cost effectiveness, the cost bit was good. The effectiveness bit didn't quite deliver what we wanted. Um, We also updated, if you remember, I uh, talked about when we were thinking about the things we knew beforehand, and I said we had um, a study in adolescence where we'd put all of the um, uh, studies together and we analyzed them as, as a big group to look at the effect. So we updated that at the end of our trial and we actually had something like 65 different trials from all over the world of mindfulness in schools That um and 14 of these had delivered this intervention universally in the same way we had in other words they've given it to every child in the class <clears throat> and you can see here on the left this is that magic effect size where we're looking for 0.2 and again it's a lot lot less than 0.2 0.05 And that's also true when we look at, that was for depression. It's also true when we look at anxiety, again, 0.08. So a long way from that magic 0.2. And also true when we look at well-being. So even when we pulled all of the trials that have done universal interventions of mindfulness in schools together, there was no signal that it's of any benefit to children and young people. Interestingly, those effects were actually immediately after the intervention was delivered, Um, and as we said, really you need to wait, and we waited a year in our trial. And when we look at the effects in all of those trials put together, um, again down the line, this so this is on average about six months later, because lots of them didn't do a whole year, wait a whole year. You can see these effects are almost zero. There's almost nothing happening. In fact, the effect on well-being at the bottom is, is at zero. So when you look at six months later, there's the the, the very, very minute effects that were there, which are nothing close to the 0.2, have gone down to almost nothing. Um, So we also looked at teacher and school outcomes. um, And here we did find a couple of effects, but these weren't in the magic three outcomes that we were caring about right at the beginning so these are the exploratory effects that may lead us to think about future studies so they're not ones you would take to the bank they're ones that say to you as a researcher this is interesting now you need to go and do a big proper study that looks at this especially so we found that not surprisingly teachers um who have mindfulness training uh they they actually turned out to be more mindful um than teachers who didn't have the mindfulness training. So the teachers who were delivering the mindfulness intervention in the mindfulness schools ended up as more mindful on self-report measures of mindfulness than the teachers who'd had no mindfulness training in the teaching as usual schools. So that's not really surprising. What was more encouraging was this effect on the school climate. The, 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 The teachers reported that the school climate had become more respectful and warmer in the mindfulness schools um, than in the uh, teaching as usual schools and these effects were uh, around that 0.2 level that we talked about but because we hadn't really planned for them um, we we the statistics on them are, are nowhere near as robust as for our three key variables we didn't plan the study to test for these effects so all they can say to us is you might want to go and look at this some more this is not something we could um, take to the bank if you like. We also then wanted to look at implementation. So, why is it that we didn't get the effects that we were hoping we might get? So, there's a whole bunch of key things in our model, our, our conceptual model, that are important when you take mindfulness training and you want to improve mental health outcomes. The first is the fidelity. So, how well did the mindfulness get delivered in terms of how it should have been delivered? How faithful? Was the actual teaching in these schools compared to what it should have been based on the training the second was the dose did all the kids actually turn up for the 10 sessions and receive the training because if they didn't then that 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 would that would reduce the chances of the trial working the third is the quality what's the quality of the teacher uh, uh competency that we managed to get with our standing start from teachers who've never done mindfulness? from a, teaching before how how good was the teaching that they delivered and the third was the reach how much did kids practice beyond the actual sessions did they practice whilst the training was going on in other words as homework and did they carry on their practice throughout that whole year that we waited before we followed them up so these four things are really important so how did we get on with those in the trial we had a traffic light system where green was we did great Amber was, we did good enough. And red was, well, this is something that we really should worry about. Um, And that's just to remind us about the macro context. So first of all, numbers of lessons attended. Almost all the kids uh, turned up to all 10 lessons. So I think we did pretty well in terms of dose. Um, And in fact, almost 85% of the schools, at least 50% um. Uh. Of the pupils, att- um, that in eighty-five percent of the schools, um, pupils attended at least fifty percent of the sessions. So I think for that we've definitely got a green light. So the the young people are at, at least sitting in the lessons, receiving the mindfulness. The second was how uh, engaged were the young adolescents in the mindfulness training. So we had five items which we we asked them about towards the end. How much did it make sense to you um, in terms of what you're trying to deal with as a young person? Do you think these mindfulness lessons will help you have a healthier lifestyle? Would you recommend them to a friend? How successful do you think mindfulness is in de- decreasing your problems? Um, and do you how important do you think it is that we make these available to young people universally? And here we 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 did much less well. So we had a naught to 10 scale for each of these questions. And most Young people scored about half, but you can see from this graph where we've got the numbers of pupils um, up up the side, that there were were lots of pupils who scored scored all of these items as zero, as in they didn't agree with them at all. So most of the pupils on average agreed with them somewhat, but it was a a modest uh, level of enthusiasm. So we gave ourselves an amber for that. Pupil practice on the other hand, was really quite poor. So on average, pupils practiced um, between once or once a week during the intervention. They're supposed to do it pretty much every day. And they, they, they did it very little. And when it came to the year after the mindfulness training and before we measured the outcomes, um, it was somewhat less than once. And that's once in that whole year, not once a week, that's once at all. So no practice whatsoever. So we weren't able to sufficiently enthuse students with mindfulness that they took it away and practiced it. And so we, we gave this a red light. We could not engage the students enough such that they did the practice. And what about the teacher training? Well, we did a whole teacher training program, um, which I won't go into. Um, and our aim was to get teachers to minimal competence. So how well did we do with that? Well, in this graph, competency is um, a score of four, which you can see in the middle. So you can see there's still substantive numbers of teachers um, who are below competent and are more at the beginner or advanced beginner stage, and not so many teachers who would be um, rated as proficient or advanced. So we gave ourselves an amber for this. Most of the teachers um, were competent, but almost none of them were were proficient so nowhere near at the level that the mindfulness in schools program experienced teachers would be at so this is what you get when you go in and do a standing start Um, interestingly and this is partly because we didn't get any effects none of these um, variables had any effects on the outcome so it wasn't that young people who had a higher dose or where the mindfulness was delivered with better, more competent teachers, or who practiced more, um, uh, had better um, scores, outcome scores on depression, social functioning, or well-being. There was no significant
0: effects on any of those things. Um,
1: okay, so the next thing we wanted to do was um, see if there were some young people for whom mindfulness seemed to be having better effects than others Um, and this again fits within all of these exploratory analyses we weren't set up to do this we were set up to look at everybody all together as one large group but it's possible of course that mindfulness is really great for some young people and not others and Um, If we're going to take it forward as a non-universal intervention, we really need to understand who benefits the most. And what we found, and don't worry about the numbers, was it didn't really make any difference on social, emotional functioning. But for, for, for depression, if you were more depressed as you went into your mindfulness training, the mindfulness training was less helpful than teaching as usual. So it's less helpful for young people with higher levels of depression. And that's also marginally true for people with lower levels of well-being, and of course they're they're highly related. If you're more depressed, your well-being is going to be lower. But again, these were uh, these are those findings that would lead to future studies. They're not findings we can take take to the bank, but some indication that if you're struggling more, then mindfulness is less helpful than if you're struggling less. Um, We did a whole bunch of research on mechanisms, which I'm just going to go through quite quickly in the interest of time. But essentially, the mechanisms question was, um, is mindfulness really improving this self-regulation variable, which we think it targets? And of course, the the chain of command we had in our heads was give mindfulness, it improves self-regulation. And then when your self-regulation is better, your depression and well-being will improve as a consequence of that. So that was the logic that we had. So did it improve self-regulation? Well, actually, yes, it seemed to um, improve it a bit. And that did seem to drive improvements in social um, uh, functioning, but not depression and well-being. So there was a relationship between your self-regulation getting better and your social functioning getting better if you had mindfulness training compared to the usual teaching, but not for our other outcomes. So that's somewhat encouraging. We actually did a whole separate trial, which I won't talk about, which tried to look at these mechanisms in more detail. Um, So here we were comparing mindfulness to another evidence-based intervention, not just usual teaching, but another intervention, which shouldn't work by improving self-regulation. So we can say, well, we expect both of these interventions to improve mental health, but we only think the mindfulness will work through self-regulation improvements and not the other training and uh so we did this whole other trial to look at that and the bottom line is um we didn't find any evidence um in this trial that mindfulness improved self-regulation there a whole bunch of measures here all all non-significant um <clears throat> so where to next um i think the conclusions for us were there's little support that are rolled out universal mindfulness intervention where we train naive teachers in secondary schools, where we deliver it to all the children, no matter what their interests or levels of enthusiasm, no matter how deprived the school, a universal rollout. There's no support, not only from our trial, but from our updated uh, meta-analysis of all the trials. the effects were 10 times smaller than what what we anticipated. And we anticipated a very small effect in the first place. If you remember the height difference between those two teenage girls silhouettes, that's what we were aiming for. And it was 10 times smaller than that. So there was little support that that um, is a a useful policy um, to be implementing. And as, I, as, as one of our uh, scientific advisors said, there are no free lunches in behaviour change. It's a very, very hard thing to do. <clears throat> but I think there's key things we can take out. Our, our, our young people just did not do any practice. And as Mark said, Mark Williams, the findings from Myriad show that the idea of mindfulness doesn't help. Sitting in a room hearing about mindfulness is not enough. It's the practice that matters. Of course, we, we don't know If they practice loads, whether that still would have worked, but we can hypothesize that it would have had stood a greater chance. So this is a future question. If we could make um, the practice levels higher, would we get better effects? And there's various ways we might think that we could do that. Another one of our co-investigators, Tamsin Ford, our work adds to the evidence that translating mental health treatments into classroom curricula is difficult. And teachers, you know, who are just regular teachers in schools who aren't experienced mindfulness in schools teachers are maybe not best placed to deliver this without much more training and support. Um, so another model would be for mindfulness practitioners to deliver these interventions uh, in schools. And again, we still that we don't know if that would work. If you've got some very experienced mindfulness teachers, would we get better results? We just don't know. That's not the trial we did. And finally, um, our kids were very unengaged. They didn't practise. They were a bit meh about mindfulness. And um, as Willem says here, one size doesn't fit all. Some young people love mindfulness. It's exactly what they've been looking for. But we need to explore ways for young people to learn these skills through things that they enjoy doing
0: anyway. Um, Friendship, sport, music, gaming, and so on. So thank you very much. Thank you, Tim, for such an interesting presentation. There are so many findings from this massive study, so many results, we could probably spend hours considering all the results that came out of this. So it's nice to get such a nice summary. Uh, We have just a very few minutes for questions. Um, I'm wondering about, uh, well, there is the teacher competence question. You alluded to this just a moment ago. Is there any reason to believe, do you think, that if teachers were more experienced and more competent, we might've seen different findings?
1: Yeah, I think I well so in our mechanisms trial we had experienced teachers but of, so, but of course we were also doing it compared to another intervention. So mm-hmm. we didn't get any difference between mindfulness and the other intervention but then we didn't expect expect any. But certainly the kids seemed to improve mm-hmm. um a bit from the beginning to the end. So um but they could have improved for all sorts of reasons obviously yeah. just passage of time or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that, that and and of course the mindfulness in schools program has lots of data showing that when they uh, when experienced teachers deliver the intervention, the effects are very promising. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think there's a, I think I think there's a good chance that experienced teachers would would get more um, out of it. But the other side of the equation is maybe experienced teachers nearly always deliver mindfulness to kids who sign up to do mindfulness. So the other side. Is, however good you are as a mindfulness teacher, how are you going to manage a group of young people who just aren't interested? Right. Um, And I, and I suppose what comes out of it for me is why, why is mental health in schools not taken more seriously? So you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to teach, you know, a level maths and get someone who's never done any maths for 20 years and say, right, let's train you up really quickly. And you've now got to go and deliver a-level maths and right. the outcome of all these, these great grades and exams that you'd get an experienced maths teacher in. Mm-hmm. So I think there should be dedicated mental health teachers
0: mm-hmm.
1: in mm-hmm. schools who are trained just like maths teachers or physics teachers or English teachers. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that I think then then it's an empirical question. Let's do the study again with teachers like that and, and see what, where, where we can, where we go.
0: Right. Yes, that is very interesting. Um. Another one that's sort of related is that there was some reason to be optimistic at the beginning with that pilot trial with adolescents that had shown some good results. So then the question is, why were there so little, virtually no effect in the Myriad trial? Is it? Do you yeah. think it's the self-selection thing, that the previous trial was kids who wanted to do it?
1: But they, a, they wanted to do it, but also it was it, it was non-randomized, and randomization yeah. is the key thing, and yeah. so okay. um, yeah, it's uh mm. so it's a
0: good like if you, if you had um
1: if you had a I don't know uh, a, it's, it's sports at school, and you said let's let's uh, compare basketball to bowling, mm. and then you ask the kids to choose what they want to do, and all the tall kids choose basketball. Mm -hmm. and all all the other kids choose bowling and then suddenly enough you find that they're they're really quite good at basketball but (laughs) if you then randomly allocate the kids to basketball and bowling you'd find they're much much less good at basketball it's a bit like that so Mm -hmm. we just don't know um right but but it yeah that's why it was a pilot trial I guess and not a major
0: right and then maybe we could squeeze in a little question about follow-up long-term follow-up so one of the questions is are there any plans for long-term follow-up for these kids i think the answer to that is no but um uh,
1: yeah no. so well of course there's been a pandemic so our actual uh outcome point was two years down downstream so yeah. we really wanted to see you know um let's go two years down because by then some of the kids would have started to get to de- proper episodes of depression and so on so it was a But because of the COVID pandemic, that arrived after the first year, so sort of about a year and a quarter in. So then we thought, well, you know, that's going to really decimate young people's mental health. So it's Mm going to we're not going to know. So we actually moved it back to the one year. But of course, we now have all the data at two years. Mm
0: -hmm. And what that's
1: really saying is, does having done mindfulness two years earlier help you, given that there's been a massive pandemic in the middle, a perfect opportunity for you to, to use your mindfulness skills to take a deep breath and, and get through all of the lockdowns and the school closures mm-hmm. and we've just we've just about um analyzed two-year oh. post-covid data now but oh. um, unfortunately the first signs of it's not made any difference there's still no benefits
0: okay all right well we so, can... yeah a longer term
1: follow-up but it hasn't changed the answer
0: yeah okay and that well, there's
1: there's data being written up so they'll okay. they'll
0: be in a future talk i guess mm-hmm. great well we can look forward to that thank you tim we have